Blog Talk Radio. Ancient Good afternoon, good evening, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues, no matter where you are and when you're listening. Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and we are here every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, and we appreciate your listener loyalty. And that uh, great snippet, um, uh, most of you probably recognize it as the song Ancient Mother. Well, if, um, if you're interested in that particular cut, uh, it is by Diva Haley. And uh, it is entitled Ancient Mother by Diva. Uh, she actually calls it Narayani. And it is so incredibly beautiful. Uh, if you would like to... Um, find out where you can get a copy of her uh, exquisite music, you can just go to my website, karentate.net, and uh, go to the um, listing for this particular um, uh, podcast, and you will see a link there. Or you, I'm sure you might be able to search it on Amazon, but you're looking for Narayani is my point, uh, because it isn't called Ancient Mother. So thank you, Diva Haley, for allowing me to use that music, because um, Ancient Mother, we do hear your call, and that has been the focus of my work for the last 30-plus uh, years and continues to be, uh, because without the sacred feminine, uh, the world has gone into chaos, and it only seems to get worse. And along those lines, uh, I just want to bring to your attention an article that just came out by the BBC. Uh, you can find it on my Facebook page. However, I am going to read just a sentence, um, and it's about um, how patriarchy actually began. And there are lots of, um, there are lots of theories out there uh, in this latest one. Uh, they talk about uh, person power is the key to power in general, uh, explains political scientist and anthropologist James Scott at Yale University, whose research has focused on early agrarian states. The elites in these early societies needed people to be able to produce a surplus of resources for them and to be available to defend the state, even to give up their lives if needed in times of war. Maintain population levels put an inevitable pressure on families. Over time, young women were expected to focus on having more and more babies, especially sons who would grow up to fight. So anyway, there's, um, there's a whole long article there. That's just a little snippet that sort of points to uh, this version 
of why patriarchy actually began. Uh, there are other theories like climate change. Uh, there's another theory uh, that uh, humanity, uh, uh, men in, in, in particular, wanted to ignore the cycle of life that was goddess. Uh, they didn't like the idea that, you know, uh, life would end and they would have to go to their grave. Instead, they liked the idea that maybe they could cheat death and end up sitting at the right hand of the patriarchal God and live forever. So anyway, these are just really interesting topics uh, for me and I know for a lot of my listeners. Um, you might even be able to find the article uh, if you you know, can't find my Facebook page, uh, but uh, it is just Karen Tate, author, or Karen Tate uh, on Facebook. Uh, but it was put out by the BBC, and the title is How Did Patriarchy Actually Begin? You can probably Google it. And within that article, there was another interesting article about sexism that is built into language that automatically relegates women to second-class uh, status or uh, you know uh, you know or, or puts them in a negative light um, it, it's it's really interesting and I would highly recommend you go and look at uh, both of those articles that are posted on my uh, Facebook page or go to the BBC website but anyway um, I have been so excited uh, waiting for this show that I have for you today. Um, you know, it, it, the title is uh, Ancient Language of Sacred Sound with David Elkington. Um, I've been so interested in sacred sound and vibration for several years now. And uh, I really feel like David is the first one who really has uh, done the deep research necessary uh, to be able to answer a lot of my questions. A lot of other people have just sort of scratched the surface um, with um, new science, if you will, but David, I feel like, has really dug deep into what the ancients knew, um, you know, uh, information that uh, maybe has been lost to a lot of us. So anyway, let me tell you a little bit about David. Um, he's an academic and historian, expert in all things biblical and Egyptological, with a specialization in the resonance patterns at ancient holy sites. Uh, I'm very excited, as I said, to discuss the role sacred sound played in ancient times at these ancient sites, as well as what ancient humanity knew about using sacred sound. We'll delve into where Christianity fit into this ancient scheme, if they did at all, and if modern music can compare to the old in this regard. Um, we'll even try to uncover the heroine in these places and her role in the story and how wisdom fits into the overall scheme. I suspect maybe David is pointing to Sophia, but we'll see. So David Elkington, welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Um, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I know you're calling from London, and I really appreciate this, uh, you know, call from, you know, across the, the pond here. Uh, I, I know it can't be as, uh, that easy for you, so, um, you know, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it, it, now, is there anything I failed to say about your background that you think is important for listeners to know? No, you got it absolutely spot on. 
I'm kind of like a generally interested party. I have a, a wide knowledge of a lot of things. I, you, I mean, in a sense, I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. But I just feel that today, very strongly within academe and elsewhere, we over-specialize to such a degree where specializations have actually become um, kind of like islands in a sea that are not connected to each other. So we need to kind of stand back and get a wider idea of connections in order to understand the overall truth, which, of course, is, 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 is by nature a very personal thing. Right. Yeah, and I totally get that, and I totally agree. Um, I'm trying to think of the book that you made me think of. Maybe the title will come to me. But it was the integration of – it was actually, I think, three authors came together from three different specializations. So they were able to integrate their knowledge to really expand – um, the impact and the importance and the uh, you know of the information that was in the book. Oh, um, I think it was Holy Blood, Holy Grail, um, and so you really got to see I think how language as well as history and mythology and all of these other fields when they're when they come together. I mean, whether you believe that book or not, but you could see how. Uh, you know, the, the, the integration of the different specializations, um, when, when they're combined, we get a, uh, a more a whole picture of, uh, of the subject, yes? Yeah, I think whatever you think of the book, it's compellingly written. And um, I have to say, I love the, the way in which it introduces you into the mystery and then into the wider mystery before coming to its conclusions. And it's interesting, you know, because, of course, we use the word myth a lot today, but we use it in the pejorative sense, as if it's a bad thing. And I think this is all down to our Judeo-Christian heritage to a large degree, because, of course, myth is much more potent and powerful than, than we can ever, um, you know, hope to realize. I mean, we still use the terms hero and heroine every day. We see it, you know, film stars, football stars, anybody who does a good deed. But if you look at myth and you look at its power to survive, its power to affect us, it really is a very majestic thing indeed. It's nothing to do with fantasy, lies, or, or you know, uh, political misinclination. Right. Well, and I mean, and, and let's think about it. You know, we realize that myth shapes our culture. Uh, and, and again, we have to realize that one person's religion is another person's myth. However, look at the Garden of Eden myth story, whatever you want to call it. Look how that has shaped humanity uh, to the detriment of women. Um, in fact, Merlin Stone, um, a feminist scholar, said it was one of the biggest and maybe earliest pieces of political propaganda out there. And look how that myth has shaped uh, society. Look at Pandora's myth, that the woman opens up the top of the jar and all the evils of the world then are, you know, um, you know put, put upon mankind. I mean, these are really some patriarchal ideas that still, um, you know, run rampant in our, uh, in our consciousness, uh, in our subconscious. The late Robert Graves, the, the 20th century's greatest love poet, 
describes the whole process of the misreading of myth as iconotropy. So in other words, you take images from antiquity and you misread them because of your own biases in the modern world. I mean, I, um, I, I think about my own conditioning in the West and, and how I, I've, I've been trying, I think with varying degrees of success, like many people, to break it. You know, you're brought up in this Christian religious um, mythic persona of the, the divine God. Uh, and and you kind of you know you just swallow it, don't you, as a as a child until the time comes when you you confront it, and then of course you read the Bible and actually in the Old Testament God is a truly awful character, um, bloodthirsty, absolutely couldn't give a damn about women, and I'm not sure he could really care less about about um, us men either, frankly. But then, then I, you know, I think about the whole Garden of Eden thing, and you know, it's it's again, it's a misreading of what obviously was a very ancient myth. And uh, a clue here is that Eden, in a sense, was the construction of the temple. So the temple itself was a reflection of the cosmos here on earth, on heaven, sorry, in heaven as it is on earth, um, or on earth as it is in heaven. Um, you know, so what you have is a balance. So you're bringing down the divine to earth. So Eden was not uh, a, a mythical state of, of innocence. What it was truly was the building of the first temples and their gardens. And so, of course, what we have with the legend of Adam and Eve is probably the legend of the very first king and queen or high priest and priestess and how eventually they disagreed with the, 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 the system of it and then went their own way. So you, you can read these things in, in many different ways. Um, and, and this is the danger with swallowing any interpretation by anybody from, I would say, the 1940s backwards, because, of course, they were very geared to seeing it only from a Christian or Judeo-Christian perspective. And this is why the yeah. world is such turmoil with the ecological crisis and everything else. And fortunately yeah. now, miracles are happening. They're beginning to, it's beginning to turn. And um, I mean, look at the role of women in the past uh, 50 years, let alone the past 100 years. I mean, it's remarkable how the feminine has finally begun to break free. And to be honest with you, I'm really glad for that as a man because a patriarchal system doesn't do men any good either. Very true, very true. Well said, David. Thank you. Well, um, I know we kind of went off on a tangent there a little bit, but so let's get back to your, uh, to your new book. And um, is the actual title, David, Ancient Language of Sacred Sound? Yes, it is, yeah. It's, and the, the subtitle okay. is the, the Acoustic Science of the Divine, which is, I mean, to okay. be honest with you, I'm not very good with titles on my books, and that was the best the publishers come up with, and uh, I think they did a very good job of it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think so. It really conveys what's in the book. Um, so how did you discover this subject? Um, well, uh, it was 1983. I had just um, come out of a, a very, very um, heavy love affair, uh, and I was, I was very, very much in love. And uh, one day the parting came and I was heartbroken. And so uh, I found myself, I was only, what, 21 at the time. So, you know, still kind of young and 
I, I just, it devastated me. It was one of those those moments in life that changes your life entirely. Um, a kind of a rude awakening to the realities of the world. And I found myself, um, it was uh, late November, I found myself in Wells Cathedral in Somerset, England. Wells Cathedral was built in around about the 1230s, 1240s. It's a Gothic cathedral. And I went in and I, I had no religious persuasion. Um, I was very much, uh, I'm very, very spiritual um, in, in, in terms of belief, but I'm not religious. Um, and as I went uh, through the nave of the cathedral, I could see on the side the stairs leading up to the chapel house. And if you look at my book or in, in one of the illustrations there, you can see the time-worn steps leading up to the chapel house. And as I got halfway up the staircase, I heard it. And it was a choir singing, um, rehearsing for the, the Christmas carol concert. And suddenly I felt myself out of my body, everywhere at once. I was I was really really quite stunned by the the the, the experience of being literally um, how can I describe it I was everywhere at once I was like water in a glass I filled up every single space I was completely overcome by it all and in that state I felt I knew all things um, and it was a state totally without ego and it lasted for such a very short period of time and when eventually I came down from that I was an emotional ruin and at that stage I thought to myself this is absolutely extraordinary and obviously I was already in a heightened state because of you know having uh, been told that my love affair must come to an end I was in the right state to then go into the cathedral and get hit by this sound and from that moment onwards I thought I'm going to go on a quest towards time and, and that's uh, the reason why uh, some 30 years later I wrote the book. So, so this, so this experience, and I think I know what you're talking about. I mean, I had an experience once due to sound and rhythm and vibration, where for for a split second or two or three or four, it didn't last long. I felt like my whole body went liquid, and I was, um, you know, I I was something else beyond my corporeal body. So I, you know, and I've never been able to recreate that, you know. So I think I know what you're talking about. Um, but uh, how did you connect the dots, I guess, because then did that take you on a quest to, to ancient sacred sites? Well, oddly enough, I went out to the uh, exterior of the cathedral because I needed to get some air because it was such an extraordinary experience of being thoroughly disembodied whilst at the same time being so totally physical. Um, and I went outside, and as I looked back at the cathedral, there over the main entrance you, is the um, part of the architecture called the Timpana. And the Timpana showed Christ enthroned in heaven, but he was enthroned within a, a, the shape of an almond or a Vesca Pisces. And I mm-hmm. knew then that that had to be some kind of sound wave pattern. And of course, as you know, Christ in the opening to John's gospel is called the word. So the word is an utterance, and an utterance would make a sound wave pattern. So in the ancient Egyptian world, that same Vesica Pisces is the symbol for the moment of creation. It's called primordial fission. So from out of nothing, that's no thing, 
comes the all, and it comes out in the shape of sound. Hana, very interesting, because timpani is a very major part of every philharmonic and symphony orchestra in the world. It's the drums. You know, so when you drum, that's timpana. So I thought to myself, gosh, this is extraordinary. And of course, what are cathedrals built for? They're built for music. They're built for choirs to actually sound out the words, the sacred words of, of God. And I started then looking further afield beyond Christianity into, into ancient cultures, into Western European Neolithic culture, into ancient Egyptian culture, and so on and so forth, and found precisely those links wherever I went. And at that point, I was completely hooked. So, David, you know, I've, you know, I've kind of had my ear to the ground, you know, um, hoping to, you know, uncover information like this. And, you know, I've read articles where they think, like, for instance, the stones at Stonehenge or uh, maybe the Hypogeum in Malta, you know, they um, cast off a, um, you know, a vibration. Um, do you think it has something to do with the type of stones? Um, and did ancient people know this? And uh, I, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, was it the stones themselves that were emanating something? Was it the acoustics in the hypogeum or in the cathedrals? Or is it all of it? Um, can you maybe explain what's happening in these sites that, um, you know, I guess are supposed to create this response in us is what I think you're saying. It's a kind of chicken and egg situation, isn't it, in a sense? But, I mean, the question really is how was it that humanity came to design and build these extraordinary places? And my, my, my thesis is that we, um, as a primitive species, okay, were actually born within the embrace of Mother Earth. And if you look at all the mythologies of the, the very, very deeply ancient uh, religions and belief systems, Earth is always feminine, Earth is always the mother. Um, and as we begin then to, 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 to search forward, we grow, we evolve, we start to look outwards beyond the caves in which we're living, beyond the, the trees in which we've, 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 we've clambered down from, and we, we're seeking to build the earliest societies that might be villages or even city-states. But what's interesting, the city-state is built around the temple. So it's almost as if we've left the cave, we've left the embrace of Mother Earth, but Mother Earth has said, like uh, a parent to their, their child when they go off to university, remember to stay in touch. So, of course, we've built these temples as an umbilicus to, to stay in touch. And so we've naturally taken the, the knowledge that we've inherited from the mother and we have constructed out of the materials of the mother the very technical apparatus, spiritual technology, if you like, within which we're going to communicate with her because the earth resonates at a particular band of frequencies. The Earth is like a bell. You've got incoming cosmic waves from deep in outer space caused by nova, supernova, gamma ray bursts, you name it. So the, in response to this, 
the earth vibrates, but she, she vibrates at a set um, of, of, of frequencies, which are, you know, for, for us, the most important of which is, is human frequencies. Now, the earth actually vibrates at 32 hertz or vibrations per second. We personally, as human beings, in response to that, actually resonate at an octave of 32 hertz at 8 hertz on average. That's eight vibrations per second. And twice a day, at the very least, um, certainly for those of us who are not, um, you know, who don't suffer from, from insomnia, we go into a state wherein we are in direct communication with the mother. It's called an alpha state. And it's when we go into and come out of sleep. You have to go to get into your, your normal everyday state. You've got to go through the vibrations as your, as your body begins to vibrate less. It's in communion with the earth. Now, what if in the caves, in the, in the earliest um, you know, uh, human communities, we took that resonant vibration, we picked up knowledge almost, almost inherently, and we used it to, to begin the growth of, of civilization. We built temples, we built them very carefully. Nothing was, was, was decorative. Nothing was there simply because it was nice to look at. Everything served a purpose. At Newgrange, you've got layers of, of, of white quartz and blue granite. And we found out that basically it's because the granite's actually able to resonate sound more. It will bounce more off the rock rather than be absorbed by it. But behind the granite, there is more of a kind of a sandstone um, uh, structure, which you cannot see, but however, which absorbs sound. It, it absorbs external sound to, you, to give you specific frequencies in which you will begin to have precisely the same experiences that I had at Wells Cathedral all those years ago. And furthermore, as a memory of, of this, and this is the beginning of myth, myth which in its original early Greek uh, form means literally that which is spoken. So in other words, the word. Myth has given us the myth of the hero. And the hero and the heroine are a part of this, this legend, wherein Mother Earth gives birth to the hero, Mother Earth being the heroine. The hero reaches heaven. And how does he do it? It's always at the site. So in other words, he is the one who comes to educate. He is the one who has the knowledge of the sound, of the rituals, of the liturgies, within which we can stay in contact with Mother Earth and Father Sky. And that generally is my thesis. I hope that uh, that's succinct enough. Wow. Uh, well, that's you know there, there's there's a, a lot of layers there, um, but uh, I, I find it incredible uh, and, and, and interesting. Um, so, but, all right. So let me ask you a few things. Do you think um, early humanity? Um, was doing this unconsciously or consciously, uh, and I and my mind goes to uh, Gobeki Tepke. You know, um, I wonder if you've had you know time to research anything about that site. Um, you know, does it connect in with your theory, and is there anything you can tell us about that site? Yeah, I don't know over much about Gobeki Tepke, but that one thing I do know is having looked at the structures of the temples there. They remind me very much, in a sense, of the hypogeum 
uh, Ingovo, Mimolta, again, very obviously used for acoustic purposes, um, as all these places were. And, in, you know, in a sense, the temples themselves in their earliest stages, in their earliest forms, they're a kind of a testimony to us coming out of a state of unconsciousness into consciousness and becoming much more self-aware. Because the next um, phase in this is the, what I call the tragic phase. The tragic phase being that the hero, in, in being associated in his myth at these places, brings script. He brings the art of writing. Because, of course, the writing in its original form was sound wave patterns. And we found, um, when we went to various sites worldwide, when we started playing with climatic drums, uh, which is sound scattered on an acoustic membrane over a speaker, when we threw the frequencies of the site at the membrane, it would take the linguistic form of the culture in which we, we had set ourselves. So in other words, yeah, we would have the ohm shape, that, that funny figure three you get with a little object set at the back. Um, in Celtic culture, we got knotwork, and in Egypt, we got hieroglyphs. It was remarkable. But it's interesting, wow. the hero brings script, but the tragic bit was that having brought script, we kind of began to write notes to each other and write books and documents and you name it. And suddenly the ancient site got left behind. Suddenly Mother Earth became more of a myth. It became more of a, a metaphor. And of course, we have detached ourselves more and more from these sites to the degree where now in the 21st century, we're scratching our heads and wondering why we are in such spiritual and physical decay. I think we've got to get back to them. But by, but, but by renewing our knowledge of these places and by re renewing ourselves. Well, you know, you, um, I'm thinking, um, you know, as you're talking about, um, you know, the acoustics in these sacred places, I'm also thinking about, you know, what we know now about the Eleusin Mysteries, for instance, that uh, the priestesses uh, probably gave those gathered there a sacred hallucinogen, you know, something grown from Mother Earth. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people gathered there, um, you know, I, I think, you know, even though they were sworn to secrecy, uh, people suspect that they maybe saw uh, an apparition of maybe Persephone from the under underworld or maybe Demeter herself. And uh, we know for how many thousands of years that, um, you know, that, that uh, religion or spirituality uh, existed. Um, do you think that's also a part of it? You know, maybe the uh, a part of the ritual. The you know, you're you're being you're you're immersed. You're, the sound is saturating your body uh, externally, so to speak, while you're maybe imbibing on the sacred medicines grown from the earth, and you have this experience of the mother that um, you know we've that, that maybe to a certain extent we've lost today. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you in that entirely. And it's sad that even Christianity has lost the art of building proper architecture in proper places because Gothic cathedrals, temples, pyramids, you name it, they're not just sighted accidentally a spot and, hey, presto, we're going to worship there. What it, it, they did was to douse the land. We've got testimonies of this going back thousands of years. 
they, they would delve it for, for, for cracks in the earth, you know, underground fault lines that, that had um, blind springs that, that were producing micro amounts of electricity, places with radon gas, uh, that, that then, you know, these places would act, would act like Faraday cages and heighten the sensitivity of those who went into them once they were constructed. Today, we don't bother with that now. We've got modern architecture and hay press says you go into a church that's newly built and you just feel dead because there's nothing there. The mother is not allowed to speak to you anymore. Um, you know, right. and it's, uh, it's, it's really tragic because the earth is something that we're very much a part of. We think that we actually own the earth. We forget one thing. It's the other way around. The earth owns us. We cannot escape from it physically. Spiritually, we might well be able to do so, but we've got a long way to go yet. Well, and, and David, you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, my early years as a, as a Catholic going to church, and it was really all about words spewing from the guy's mouth in the pulpit. Um, there wasn't the element of sacred sound anymore, you know. It was more, or, or, you know, it was more these Bible stories and, you know, indoctrination, so to speak. Um, you know, it, there wasn't the opportunity, I don't think think um you know it wasn't like we went there every sunday to hear this beautiful m- music that helped us transcend um it was just you know spewing forth dogma and um so even though some of these churches you know the older ones especially like the ones you have in europe um may have the capacity to help us transcend um it, 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 i don't know that the music is still present um, am I am I wrong in that? Um, I mean, have we shifted from the musical we, vibration we, we and shifted. harmonies to? Yeah, we have shifted. I mean, imagine uh, Dark Age Europe, um, no cathedrals, or except you've got the heavy Romanesque uh, cathedrals, which are very forbidding places, built with very thick architecture, very small windows, very dark. And then suddenly this miracle takes place. Um, the Crusaders come back from the Holy Land and they've stolen certain concepts of Islamic architecture and certain parts of Greek Ionic architecture from the late classical period. And they take it back to, to Abbot, Abbot Stuga in Paris who rebuilds Saint-Denis in this new style where you have the, the Gothic arch or ogive. And because it's a pointed arch, you can support much more weight upon it Therefore, there's no need to have thick walls and small windows. Suddenly, you have these extraordinary places that are full of light, and they're like giant crystals because, of course, you have these wonderful stained glass windows, which, you know, which, which tell stories from the Bible and from the Gospels, etc. And furthermore, they resonate boundless. So your average, uneducated, medieval aristocrat and, and all the way down to the peasantry would go into these places and they would be utterly transformed because they were transfixed by the beauty of the music and the liturgies because suddenly it had a very deep and profound meaning. It still does if it's done properly. And, and so, of course, that then led to the transformation of Europe. It led to the Renaissance and eventually the Enlightenment. And, of course, it led to the spread of the, this, this, this principle of civilization across the planet. We give ourselves the credit for it. Actually, it should be 
the credit should be given to the masons who designed and built these places, as well as to the places themselves. They were profound, uh, as was the Great Pyramid and other pyramids like it in their own day. And in a sense, we need to kind of get rid of the the crushing uh, awfulness of the nihilistic culture we live in today and get back to a more beautiful, creative period wherein we can begin to appreciate these things much more. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking today, you know, we're, we're so starved for it. Um, you know, we even go to these sound baths that, uh, you know, maybe in our local city to try to avail ourselves of, uh, you know, some of, some of this, um, you know, some of this beauty that helps us, uh, you know, transcend, you know, and maybe we get a little glimmer. Um, well, David, um, yeah. let's, we, we, we need to take a break. Uh, we can go back to that if you have any thoughts on that. Um, but, when we, but after this, uh, this little break, I want to ask you about, um, you know, what early Christianity, what they were doing with regard to this. Um, were they trying to destroy or preserve or whatever? But, um, you know, but I'll be back in a second because first uh, I have a word here from Joe Carson for my listeners. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material Joe Carson described. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $9.95 at dancingwithgaia.com. And while we're on the subject of books, um, I'd like to uh, let listeners know my newest book, my seventh book, uh, is out right now. Uh, May uh, was the launch month, and uh, I launched it in May because it's also Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, the book is called Normalizing Abuse. 
And it takes the reader on a serious yet heartfelt journey of discovery, not just of um, tapping back into themselves and uh, their own history, but also looking into many aspects of our everyday lives, such as academia, government, corporations, the workplace and media, family and friends, society and culture, religion, the military, and much more, to peel back the veneer hiding rampant, insidious abuse Use and exploitation that we have just normalized. With dozens of prestigious endorsements and a powerful foreword written by pioneering spiritual educator Matthew Fox, known for his activism for gender and eco-justice, normalizing abuse, uh, I am proud to say, is being hailed as a bullhorn for truth-telling, so desperately needed as we are called to stand up and speak truth to those wielding toxic power over us so that we cease to normalize the abuse so rampant in our world. Normalizing abuse can be purchased from the usual booksellers. Um, I'm available for interviews about the work. Uh, you can get the book from my website, karentate.net, or uh, just go to Amazon. It is right there in Kindle or paperback. So uh, I am speaking to David Elkington uh, about his really interesting book, uh, Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. Uh, David, what, did, uh, what role did the Christians play in this? Uh, were they trying to destroy this ancient knowledge, preserve it? Uh, where do they fit into the scheme of things? Um, on both sides of the fence, strangely enough, because... Uh... Christianity did an awful lot to destroy classical civilization at the end of the classical period. But at the same time, elements of that were preserved by Christians. And I mean, I, to give the church full praise for actually congealing Europe uh, at the end of the Dark Ages into a much more corporeal and civilized mass, because it was torn and riven apart by internecine war between families, tribes, and countries. It was the church that provided the focus that allowed the, 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 imp the importing of the Gothic to take place. So, so in a sense, it is a favor. But, you know, the church has ever wants to, to then go to, go to excesses by then trying to say it's us and only us, whereas, in fact, there, there's a lot else beyond it. And that's the tragedy of it. But, you know, that just happens to be the, the, the human condition, I'm afraid to say. Um, you know, I don't want to be overly, overly critical of the church. There are a lot of people out there with faith. What I'm trying to describe, though, is the science of faith in the sense that, you know, singing the, 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 the sounds of the divine is so very, very good for the human system. And I encourage more of it. So let me ask you, um, you know, David, we can go on YouTube and find all sorts of, um, you know, uh, files out there that, uh, you know, that are supposed to be at a particular hertz. And, you know, uh, this particular hertz is for healing or this is for reaching the divine. Um, is there a particular hertz to have the sort of experience you described that day in the church, or is it just, you know, let me, yeah, let me just ask, have you answered that? Well, I, I think uh, there's no specific 
frequency, there's a band of frequencies that your listeners should look at, and that is the alpha frequencies, uh, which are part of Schumann resonance. And if you can get yourself into that state consciously during the day, and I can recommend listening to good, slow classical music. I mean, Mozart's um, music is is really good for getting into an alpha state. I, I talk about the power of Mozart's music in my book, actually, about calming classrooms of children in a very hyperactive state. Mozart works profoundly well. And it can get you into a real sense of the alpha rhythms within which you become a receptor for, for a greater sense of knowledge. I mean, you've heard the old maxim, if you've got a problem, sleep on it. So in coming out of sleep, you go into an alpha state. And of course, many people solve problems in their sleep because the alpha state is a bit like, you know, when you drop a, a, a tiny drop of oil on a puddle of water and suddenly it just goes whoosh, you see it branch outwards, you know? It almost takes over the whole surface of the puzzle. That's a bit like an alpha state. You're suddenly able to make connections between things that you wouldn't normally during the day. So it kind of gives you a greater open-mindedness. If you encourage, encourage that within yourself during the day, it's a great aid to work. It's a great aid to inner peace. Okay. Well, I don't know if you consider Mozart modern music, but does modern music compare to the old in, uh, you know, creating these um, experiences? I don't really know that much about modern music except how to run away from it, to be honest with you. (laughs) I just, um, I much prefer uh, medieval choral music because I find it, it induces within me um, a particular state that I, I, I like to be in, particularly when I'm working and writing. I mean, I, a lot of modern um, classical composers, Britton, Holst, Shostakovich and others, can really induce and provoke mood. But, but, but I always find that the liturgical choir music from the cathedrals, the choral music, to be very profoundly um, um, beautiful, both in terms of rhythm in terms of harmony and in terms of getting you into that proper state. Um, it's up yeah. to you. I mean, what you, when you prepare yourself for these, these things, you've got to, you know, you've got to control your breathing more. You've got to slow down. Just take it easy and just concentrate on being aware that you're in that state, you know, a bit like a lucid dream. You know, you're, you're fully conscious, but yet you're slightly, if not wholly unconscious. Hmm. And um, do you believe that uh, it's easier to have a more powerful experience if you're at one of these uh, ancient sacred sites, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very much the case. And um, no more so than in places like the Great Pyramid, which is acoustically perfect. And I mean, when I say that, it sounds very blasé, but it really is technically perfect, which is almost impossible by any human means. We simply cannot recreate, recreate those acoustics today with all our computers and technology and everything else. So how, the, how on earth they, they did it then is, is beyond me, but the, the pyramid is a very profound place. And there are other places too. Um, you know, I, I, the Lady Chapel of Ely Cathedral in Cambridgeshire, England, is also very profound. But there are lots of places like that across the planet um, that I would recommend people go into and, and experience for themselves. And also that, that right. feeling of that 
electricity running up the spine when you're standing at these places or in them. That's also a sign, you know, and you need to kind of just stand there and imbibe it, rather like a good French wine. Just let it absorb you. (laughs) Let it take you on that journey, you know? Right. Yeah. Get out of your head. Get out of your left brain. Go into your right brain if you can try to start to make that shift. Uh, Because, well, and you made me think about that book, The Alphabet and the Goddess, too, um, where language, uh, as it developed, it... um, it uh, took us away from these states of consciousness and took us away from goddess and the earth. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, it was just one of the, the tragic principles of, of the, the forward thrust of civilization. I'm, I'm not saying that um, we should go back to that, but what I'm saying is that now that we're more self-aware, we should be aware more of the feminine and the way it works, and therefore hark back to it in terms of harmony and balance between the, you know, the idea of being female and the idea of being male, you know, it's, um, right. it's a curious thing. It, it's, we, we need, we need to have a balance of both, not the supremacy of one. So can the average person, you know, living in some little town, uh, be, you know, uh, can they go into their church and have one of these experiences if the music is right? Um, yes, I would say that they could do. Um, uh, I think if the music is right and the acoustics of the place are right and you're in the right place for it, um, you, you need to find what's called the standing waveform, the, the, the antinode. That's a very technical term. But what I mean by that is that when you play sound in a church, it, it, it vibrates everywhere back and forth. Imagine throwing stones into a pond and you're watching the ripples bounce back um, you know, from the edges back to the center. And that's the way sound works in terms of a church and cathedral. You need to be in the right place so it hits you from all areas at specific times. And you just need to practice, really. And quite often, ironically, and this shows you the knowledge, the inherent knowledge within the early Christian church, the altar place is generally the place where this generally happens. Okay. Um, well, let's, you know, you mentioned the pyramid. Um, let me ask you, you know, we've, we've uh, read the stories. Uh, some, I mean, I think Shirley MacLaine even believes she uh, saw it when she visited Peru. Um, do you believe sound can levitate large stones? And, um, you know, your thoughts on that? I think the technology that we're developing now will come to do that, but I don't think that it did so in the past. I think the answer to that conundrum is that sound levitated the human who was then able to move the stone. Um, I'll give you an example. It's a very rough example, but again, it's in the book. A lady driving with her two children to drop them off at school was involved in an accident where the car toppled off into a ditch on, onto her children. She was able, through her, her state, her panic state, to flood her body with enough endorphins to lift that car out and release the children. Now, imagine if you could do that under technical, mythical terms. Um, you know, you're an ancient builder. You're, you're taking the right substance. You've controlled it you would be able to actually use that power for limited amounts of time in order to get those stones moving. 
And I believe very hmm. much that's what happened. Interesting. Okay. And um, so what about, uh, let's go to Egypt now. Well, well let's stay in Egypt. Um, the Shistrum and the Dejed Pillar. Uh, the Shistrum, you know, I've heard it described as a tuning fork. Herodotus said uh, Isis kept the energies of the universe flowing using it. What were they really in your mind? Now, this is really interesting, actually. I looked at the sistrum, um, and it's like a rattle. It's like a shaman's rattle. Um, and the shaman's rattle, again, was there to induce specific uh, states of consciousness. But if you look at the sistrum and the way it's constructed, it's constructed in the form of the Egyptian hieroglyph, the Ankh, which is a bit like the Christian cross, but it's got a teardrop upended on top of it, okay? So it looks like a bit of an anchor, hence the word anchor, you know, used in to, 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 to moor ships. The word anchor comes from the Egyptian word ankh, which means life. Now, interestingly enough, the form of life, the form of, um, sorry, the quantum particle that gives us life, that resonates at precisely the, the right electronic frequencies at a quantum scale, is the quark. And I believe, now I think it's called the D orbital, and the D orbital is precisely the shape of the Ankh and the Sistrum. So really, really interesting connections here. Almost as if we, we knew inherently this very principle from the very outset of our, of our consciousness at, at the beginnings of, of, Christi- of the, the beginnings of civilization. So, so to my mind, the Sistrum was definitely a microcosm of the universal resonantal principle, which was remembered in ancient Egyptian civilization when it was used to induce, I think, shamanic dreams. Okay, all right. Um, and uh, and the Dejed pillar, uh, what was that about? Well, Jed or Jedi, uh, believe it or not, was actually the original name of the god Osiris. It basically means the, the backbone of the god. And of course, as we all know, the Kundalini runs through the backbone, so allows us to have heightened states of consciousness. Um, and interestingly enough, the original um, step pyramid of Egypt, the, the Pyramid of Djoser, is constructed upon an invisible jed pillar. In other words, the superstructure is built around a, a blank jed pillar, so that when you look at it in fan view, you can see the jet pillar inside. So what you've got there is a place that is dedicated to the god Osiris, as he then became. The jet pillar being actually very, very, very much um, his his mythic symbol. So it's a resonating principle. It's the it's also the pillar of the god. It's the original architectural pillar. And of course, around the tops of pillars in architecture, you get electrical charge. And it's interesting, you know, if you go to the top of the Great Pyramid, as William Siemens did in the 1870s, he um, took a, a, a bell jar with him and wrapped it in a, in a damp piece of brown paper. And it was, uh, I believe, twilight time. And as he held it up above his head, it lit up like a light bulb, because that is how much is wound around the Great Pyramid, which itself is constructed around the principles of the Jed Pillar. Well, and, and I mean, I've heard, you know, heard documentaries where they think the pyramid was actually a source of power, of electricity. So maybe that's what you just confirmed 
Well, it's interesting. Again, the word electricity begins with the term L, and L in, um, in, in Canaan and throughout the Middle East, in fact, and it's mentioned also in the Bible. It's the first name of God mentioned in the Bible. L is that principle. So, so in other words, electricity is named after God. So it would have had some kind of, um, uh, forgive the pun, currency uh, within ancient Egypt too. So do you think um, the ancient Egyptians were probably the most sophisticated, knowledgeable uh, culture, or uh, did another culture um, surpass them? No, I think they were, definitely, because of one very profound thing. They lived in a very stable land where for thousands of years the Nile reliably flooded uh, twice a year, and you could virtually tell the time by the time you know the, the, the Nile flooded. Elsewhere, you had lands that were actually riven by earthquakes, drought, famine, and war. So, of course, civilizations came and they went. But Egypt's lasted for a very long time, for many thousands of years. There is no other example of an empire or a civilization on the planet that has lasted for, as, for near as long as that. So, obviously, the Egyptians are very, very important to us even now as we begin to investigate more the mysteries of the pyramid and how they enhanced these of those places. Okay. Uh, so, David, my final question, and then I'm going to give you a last word. Um, the Ephesian letters of uh, the goddess Artemis, uh, it's been said that they're powerful letters, that the, you know, when they're spoken in the right vibration or harmony, uh, you know, when they're in, their, in, in the words are spoken precisely, accurately, uh, that uh, it makes magic. Maybe even Artemis appears. Um, any of your research point to anything around the Ephesian letters? I've done a bit of research on that, as I have done with other languages. And again, um, things happen when you're in that state of mind. And if you're good at it, um, then remarkable things will happen. And, and, and certainly presences will appear. There's no two ways about it. It's how we interpret those things, of course. I mean, a lot of scientists today are beginning to wake up to the fact that these things happened after many decades of dismissal. But, but there's definitely something about the pronunciation of words, both in rhythm and in song, that can provoke the most powerful effects within the human brain. Well, it makes you think about Indian mantras, right? Kind of the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, precisely that. I thoroughly agree. Okay. Um, well, David, um, I, I want to give you the last word here. Is there anything I haven't thought to ask uh, that you believe it's important for listeners to know? No, not at all. Um, I would just say to your listeners, just breathe deeply, breathe slowly, go in and just experience the wonders of these extraordinary places. But don't forget the music, too. And, and, and also... We must respect these places and the, the faiths and the beliefs that took place and still take place to this day within them. And although there's a lot of ignorance about these places by the people who own them, um, I think uh, once you've kind of looked at my work and other work associated with it, you can re-educate these people and move them away from ignorance and more into knowledge. 
Because as Shakespeare said, ignorance is the curse of God, knowledge the wing by which we fly to heaven. Hmm. A lovely thought to end the interview on, David. Uh, thank you so very much. And uh, we look. Uh, it, it, and if someone wanted to read more about your work, I mean, obviously, get your book, Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. Uh, but is there any other place to go to? I think you said you're working on a website. But uh, can I refer listeners anywhere else besides your book? Um, yeah, you can go to um, a Facebook page called the Jordan Codices, C-O-D-I-C-E-S, for news of my latest project. And there'll be further news on that, I'm hoping, later on this year. Um, I am developing a website, so people will be able to, to hear more um, in, 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 in the months to come. Uh, otherwise, um, please you know, keep in touch with my publisher, Inner Traditions, on their website uh, for any further news. They're an excellent bunch of people, very friendly, wonderful people to deal with. And uh, as I say, I wish your listeners all the very best. Thank you very much, David. Uh, I really appreciate all the information you've shared with, uh, with listeners uh, this morning. Thank you, uh, thank you for calling in from London, and uh, I hope we can keep in touch with um, you know, the work you have going on. Thank you. Bless you, Karen. Thank you so much. It was lovely to speak. I- All right, bye-bye. Well, that was Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. That's the name of the book uh, by David Elkington that we were talking about. And just to repeat his Facebook page, in case you didn't catch it, it's the Jordan-Led Codices, J-O-R-D-A-N, Led, L-E-A-D, Codices, C-O-D-I-C-E-S. Well, um, that was fun. And... uh, Yeah, I just love the information uh, he put forth today. I think um, uh, he's on the cutting edge of some stuff. Um, So that about does it uh, for me today, folks. Um, Before I go, though, I want to remind you about the Divine Feminine app. Uh, Please go there. Um, You can register quick and easy at no cost. Uh, It will help you find circles in your area as well as uh, virtual events. Uh, around the country, around the world that you can take part in. And as a benefit to our listeners, you can click on Upgrade Membership and scroll down um, to use the code Sacred Feminine to get a 90-day access to entering your own featured events that will be sent to local users. So that's the Divine Feminine app. Uh, Don't forget about my book, please, uh, Normalizing Abuse. Uh, If you have been a follower over the years and uh, would like to see me uh, to see me to uh, be able to continue to do what I do, uh, it would be most appreciated if you can go take a look and uh, buy a book or two. And uh, next Wednesday, uh, I have Sheena Kundi with me. We're going to be talking about the madness and the magic. Uh, that will be the first day of June. And, uh, and if you're on my mailing list, you'll be getting my newsletter. I'll be talking about uh, summer solstice and sun goddesses. And who knew it, but June is the month to also honor cats. How do you like that? So uh, finally, uh, go to my website, uh, karentate.net. There's lots of free stuff there. There's meditations, inspirational messages, articles, Uh, There are selected podcasts 
uh, called uh, Archive Wisdoms of Our Foremothers and Way Showers, who I've interviewed um, uh, on the show here in years past, and they have maybe left this earthly plane and are no longer with us, but their voices and wisdom live on. Uh, so that about does it for me today, as I said, and um, uh, let me leave you with one of my uh, favorite quotes. Uh, and this is from Carol Christ. The four reasons women need goddess. Number one, to affirm and legitimize the beneficence of female power. Number two, to affirm the female body and its life cycles. Number three, the affirmation of women's will. And number four, the affirmation of women's bonds with one another and their positive female heritage. And Carol wrote that in 1979, and you can... Uh, uh, go more in depth with those four reasons. Um, if you Google Carol Christ, four reasons uh, women need the goddess, it's important that women know that. Well, thank you, dear listeners, uh, for being with me uh, again today. It is always my pleasure to uh, increase all of our knowledge and awareness so that we can manifest a new normal out there in the world because obviously uh, – what uh, passes for normal out there is, uh, in so many cases, abuse and exploitation. And, you know, that doesn't mean we can avoid suffering. You know, suffering happens. You know, we get ill, someone we love dies, we're in a car accident, something like that. But there is an awful lot of abuse and exploitation we can rid ourselves of if we awaken to it recognize it as such, and start to make a plan to remove it from our lives. And that's what I talk about in my book. Uh, I talk about uh, so many, many, many things we just accept as normal that really is abuse, exploitation, sin, domination, whatever you want to call it, uh, that really shouldn't be, but it passes for normal in this patriarchal uh, predator capitalistic society. Um, so that's all I got to say for today. So goodbye for now, and um, I'll leave you with a little Sepmet news. about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-4444. 
800-242-5330. Or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 